0: Welcome to Wisdom Trek with Gramps. I am Guthrie Chamberlain and we are on day 2279 of our trek. The purpose of Wisdom Trek is to create a legacy of wisdom, to seek out discernment and insights, and to boldly grow where few have chosen to grow before. We are continuing the messages I delivered at Putnam Congregational Church over the past couple of years. This is the 22nd of a 25 week message in our series covering the book of Hebrews. This message is titled, Watch out for worldliness. I pray that it will be a conduit of learning and encouragement for you. Now we're continuing our extended series through the book of Hebrews in the New Testament. Now last week, we focused on that marathon of life of the Christian faith, that long-term life of faith, which requires endurance and discipline. And this week, we're going to explore a call to listen to God in the message titled, Watch Out for Worldliness. Now, I've inserted in your bulletin insert today the passage in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 14 through 29. This is from the New Living Translation, which I use on my personal Bible study most often. And one of the things I want to encourage, I mentioned before, is you're studying the Word of God and reading through it, it's good to compare different versions because it helps us to grasp some of the nuances between those versions of the Bible. The New Living Translation today, I thought, a little bit better to bring out the message of God's Word. So I wanted to read it out of the New Living Translation, so I've included it in your bulletin insert. So follow along as I read. And this section is titled, A Call to Listen to God. Work at living at peace with everyone, and work at living a holy life. For those who are not holy will not see the Lord. Look after each other, so none of you fail to receive the grace of God." Watch out that no poisonous root of bitterness grows up and trouble you, corrupting many. Make sure that no one is immoral like godless or godless like Esau, who traded his birthright as a firstborn son for a single meal. You know that afterwards, when he wanted his father's blessing, he was rejected. It was too late for repentance, even though he begged with bitter tears. You have not come to a physical mountain, to a place of flaming fire, darkness, gloom, and whirlwind, as the Israelites did at Mount Sinai. For they heard an awesome trumpet blast and a voice of a terrible, so terrible that they begged God to stop speaking. They staggered back under God's command. If even an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned to death. Moses himself was so frightened at the sight of this that he said, I am terrified and trembling. No, you have come to Mount Zion, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to the countless thousands of angels in a joyful gathering. You have come to the assembly of God's firstborn children, whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God himself, who is the judge over all things. You have come to the spirits of the righteous ones in heaven, who have now been made perfect. And you have come to Jesus, the one who mediates the new covenant between God and his people, and the sprinkled blood which speaks of forgiveness instead of crying out for vengeance like the blood of Abel. Be careful that you do not refuse to listen to the one who is speaking. For if the people of Israel did not escape when they, re- when they refused to listen to Moses, the earthly messenger, we will certainly not escape if we reject the one who speaks to us from heaven. When God spoke from Mount Sinai, his voice shook the earth. But now he makes another promise. Once again, I will shake not only the earth, but the heavens also. This means that all creation will be shaken and removed so that only unshakable things will remain. Since we are receiving a kingdom that is unshakable, let us be thankful and please God by worshiping him in holy fear and awe, for our God is a devouring fire. Now last week in Hebrews 12, verses 1 through 13, it began with the strong image of running a race in verse 1 with endurance. Then it taught us, to set our sights on Jesus Christ, setting aside all the hindrances and the sin that so easily entangles us. And then verses 4 through 11, the focus was on God's intense and sometimes painful training program to keep us strong during this marathon of our Christian faith. The author urges us to stay healthy, to persevere in the race that is set out for us, so that the grueling challenges that we face in life will not harm us but rather we should be healed, we restored, renewed, and refreshed in him. The remainder of chapter 12 describes those who are healed and living a sanctified life, and that's what we're going to talk about today. The passage contains some of the most vivid, glorious languages in all of Scripture describing our salvation in Christ and our new position in his kingdom. The message in this section is simple. As we run that race of faith, which we need to, we need to watch out for worldliness. But worldliness isn't simply indulging in lust of the flesh and engaging in sinful activity. That's what we think of worldliness as. But worldliness isn't, is, that's just one form. Worldliness is also an attitude that prioritizes the things of the world over the things of Christ. In contrast, the heavenly inheritance, that new covenant that is centered on Christ, is compared to the Old Covenant, the precepts of the law. And it presents us with a complicated choice, both to us and the audience of the original audience of Hebrews. We are to acknowledge Jesus as Lord alone, or we're to deny deny or discount Christ as the Lord and going back to the old system that has been rendered obsolete. Now, we have to put our minds behind the Jewish eyes of the recipients of the book of Hebrews. They came out of the Jewish system, the practices of the law, the synagogue, and all its rituals. And now they're being told that we're free in Christ. That's an old system. We now have a new system. Today we face the same thing, though, but we may not even realize it. It's that list of rules that we must follow in order to be considered spiritual. Do you show up for church every time it's open? Do you wear this type of clothes? Do you talk this way? Do you only associate with certain people? And if so, that makes you spiritual. This is called legalism. Yes, legalism too can be a form of worldliness. It's masquerading as a spiritual maturity. As we look into verses 14 through 17, in our marathon of faith, worldliness can ruin us. If we let it get the best of us, we'll soon slow down in our spiritual walk. We'll wear out and we'll fall aside. And if we don't resist it, the attachment to the here and now will set us so far back that it will be difficult to get back into the race, that marathon of our Christian walk. If you'll look at your bulletin insert on the other side today, in the top half of it, we're encouraged to watch out for worldliness And this ominous message begins to take shape in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 14 through 17, where we find two positive commands in verse 14 and then three negative commands in verses 15 and 16. After that, we need to consider the serious consequences that result in a failure to overcome the temptation toward worldliness in verse 17. Let's first look at the positive side. The author of Hebrews first gives us as readers it says, work at living at peace with everyone. In our world that seems to be rocked with constant conflict, with lawsuits, with divorce, with protest, with racism, with terrorism, with prejudice and open warfare, the pursuit of peace seems almost impossible, especially if you spend too much time watching the news services who pander to us in order to feed us the stuff that shows all this destruction. In reality, though, the worldwide church of Christ is growing by leaps and bounds. And there's so much good stuff going on in the world that we need to focus on instead of this stuff that's contrary to the peace that says, work at living at peace with everyone. Even on our interpersonal level, though, in our families, our churches, our schools, our workplaces, sometimes peaceful, harmonious relationships are hard to maintain in this dog-eat-dog world. Worldliness says, killed or be killed. But God says something different. And he repeats it in Romans chapter 12, verse 18, when the Apostle Paul wrote to the Church of Rome. He says, do all things, do all you can to live at peace with everyone. We're not to conflict with each other, but live at peace as much as possible with everyone. And then the second positive command is to work at living a holy life, in verse 14. The world system lures us into conformities and patterns of their world, their priorities, their luxury, their indulgences, their accumulations of things. And don't we all fall prey to that? Our personal gratification, our pleasures. But God has a different design. Also in the book of Romans, Paul wrote in verses, chapter 12, verse 2, Don't copy the behaviors and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. It's contrary to the way the world thinks. The author of Hebrew uses the word holy here to convey an idea of something that is set apart from the world, a marked difference between our priorities and pursuits and the world's priorities and pursuits. Remember that anything can be made holy. Even common utensils or common dishes can be considered holy if they're set apart for the work of God. And that's what the word holy means, just set apart for the work of God. It's not meaning that you're super spiritual, that you walk on water, that you never sin. No, being holy is being set apart for God's purpose. Remember, Anything can be that it can be your utensils, your instruments it can be your work that you perform. offerings of worship can conclude us also if we 're set apart and made holy for god 's purpose when we 're morally distinct or set apart from worldliness around us, we are made holy and we will see the Lord clearly through our spiritual eyes, as Jesus taught us in the Sermon on the Mount in chapter 5, verse 8, he says, God blesses those whose hearts are pure, for they will see God. Now, following these two positive commands that the author of Hebrews inserts here, the audience is now presented with three negative warnings, reminding us that the way of righteousness is littered with dangers that we're to avoid. Now, the first warning was in verse 15, look after each other so that none of you fails to receive the grace of God. Contrary to the world's mentality that embraces a rigid application of legalism and spiritual principles of karma, Christians operate in the realm of grace, not on the realm of law. When we fail to model grace, encourage grace, believe in grace, live in grace, and share grace with others, we fall on our faces and we backslide into worldliness. The second warning, it says, to watch out that no poisonous root of bitterness grows up troubling you, corrupting many. The author employs an image that he drew from De- Deuteronomy chapter 29, verse 18, where the people of Israel were warned. And the verse says, I am making this covenant with you so that none, no one among you, no man, woman, clan, or tribe, will turn away from the Lord our God and worship these gods of other nations so that no root among you bears bitter or poisonous fruit. So he's using that passage from Deuteronomy here in Hebrews. And the third warning is in verse 16, make sure that none, no one is immoral like godless Esau, who traded his birthright as the firstborn son for a single meal. The author chose to use Esau as a perfect personification of worldliness one who valued the temporary, the fleeting lust the, of the flesh more than the enduring, enduring spiritual blessings that we have of God's covenant. Poor old Esau. He lived by sight rather than by faith. He lived for today rather than for eternity. He lived for this world rather than for the next. Now, you might remember that tragic story. He came home one day so hungry, so famished, that he literally traded the blessing of a birthright of a firstborn son of Isaac for a bowl of stew. The message is clear to us. Don't trade your priceless spiritual inheritance for the paltry wearers of this world. Nothing in this world will remain forever. And for us to grasp onto this world as if it's everything in our lives is contrary to what God wants for us. So worldliness can take the image of even something good, but if we're grasping too tightly to what's here and now, instead of what God has for us for eternity, then it becomes worldliness to us. So far we've seen these two positive commands in verse 14, the three warnings in verses 15 and 16, but now in verse 17 the author describes the serious consequences illustrated by This horrifying fate that Esau, after trading the spiritual for the worldly, after his stomach was full, foolish Esau finally came to his senses. He realized what he had done. He had sworn it with an oath that cannot be broken to forfeit his birthright to his younger brother Jacob. Now Jacob was a schemer, but Jacob didn't force him to give up his birthright. He treated it for a quick meal that he slurped down with fleeting pass- passions of self-indulgence. But then when he tried later in life to reverse that irreversible, he discovered that he had crossed the threshold into a condition that he could not undo. Verse 17, it says, You know that afterwards, when he wanted his father's blessing, he was rejected. It was too late for repentance, even though he begged with bitter tears. Esau had to live with the consequences of his choices. The cost of Esau's worldliness was losing something that was much more significant. He gave up everything for nothing. That stew was digested and out of his body that next day. It is a fact that God does allow us to have a free will, to make choices in our lives. So we're free to choose on many things, But God has also established the law of planting and harvesting. Therefore, although we are free to choose, we are not free from the consequences of our choices. If we make a wrong choice, we may have to deal with those consequences throughout our lives. If we make good choices, likewise, the consequences of those good choices will build us up spiritually. So the implication to the original audience of Hebrews, and to us. It's clear. If we fail to press on for peace and purity, as verse 14 describes, and we become entangled with worldliness, as verse 15 and 16 describe, then the eventual outcome will not be a pleasant one for the original audience of Hebrews or for us. We need to remember we're on this spiritual marathon through our life. Sometimes our life ends what we might see as prematurely. Others live on and on and on, like Betty, like Janice, like Thelma. They're well into their 90s and still praising the Lord for it. It's a marathon. Not everything in life is easy for anyone. Sometimes it's rugged, a long, painful, exhausting marked out with trails and challenges. But those challenges are there to grow us spiritually throughout our journey. Thankfully, we have a trainer and a coach that is more than just a mere friend. He is our Heavenly Father, as we looked at last week in verses 5 through 11. He wants what's best for us, even though we don't, might not understand what that is. But just as in physical races, there are rules that we must follow. There are rules and precepts and warnings for participants in the spiritual race. These rules or precepts prevent us from ending up like Esau did, Overcome by worldliness and then unable to repent. Now, when we think of repent, we think of turning back from it. But this phrase is unable to repent for Esau means that he must live with the consequences of his choices. And so must we. And then this next section is one of the vivid examples in all of Scripture. It's describing... Two mountains, Mount Sinai, Mount Zion. The author leads us down the path of these two passes to the mountains. The mountain Mount Sinai was where the law was received. Mount Zion is our future. We can actually visit these two mountains physically. They're physically over in the nation of Israel. They're geographic historical places that we could visit today. But the author is using them here as an illustration of two competing world systems. One which is temporary, worldly, and obsolete, which is Mount Sinai. The other, which is eternal, heavenly, and absolute, Mount Zion. The first represents a worldly approach to spiritual life, the laws, the regulations, the sensory approach to worship. Where we get all worked up in the worship itself, instead of the worshiping of who we should be worshiping. The other represents a heavenly approach to spiritual life, a life of grace, faith, hope, and love. The writer of Hebrews shows his audience that the representation of the old covenant is in stark contrast to the new covenant so that we can see where we stand before the Lord. The purpose of the law was to show how far short we fall of God in our own flesh. The purpose of Mount Zion is to show us the grace that God has given us. Mount Sinai represents the law and all its rigid requirements with frightening sound and images like trumpets and whirlwinds and fire and gloom and darkness and death. The author portrays a heart-stopping fear that came with the delivery of the law to fully In passages like Exodus 19 and Deuteronomy chapter 5, with the old covenant came fear and trembling, shock and awe. It was so horrifying, such a horrifying experience that even Moses in verse 21 says, Moses himself was so frightened at the sight that he said, I am terrified and trembling. So By conjuring up these emotions, the author of Hebrews, especially for those Jewish believers that he was writing to, warns these marathon runners, which actually include us also, about the dangers of returning to that old obsolete mountain, that one who is fleshly, earthly, worldly, and its approach to trying to live right, but failing so miserably, because we can't live as God once by the set of rules and regulations. It will only lead to fear and trembling because we can never meet those requirements of the law, nor can we meet legalistic rules of today in our modern culture. Instead, we should stay on the course heading to Mount Zion, that glorious mountain. Our closing hymn today is we're marching to Zion. Beautiful, beautiful Zion. We're marching upward to Zion, that beautiful city of God. We need to keep that in focus and not to focus on that terrible mountain with all its trembling and fear. So turning the eyes of the readers, the minds, away from that dead Mount Sinai, he then describes how heavenly, beautiful Mount Zion is. It's God's city, a heavenly Jerusalem. This mountain represents a personal, loving presence of a living God. Verse 22 says, no. You have come to Mount Zion, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, with its countless thousands of angels in joyful gathering. Until that time when Christ returns, there's an unseen realm of the heavenly beings that we don't have the sight to see. But at that time, we'll mingle with angels We'll fellowship with other believers who have gone before us. We'll converse with Jesus himself. And instead of cowering in fire and smoke, we'll stand face to face, as verse 23 says, to God himself, who is the judge over all things. And when we do this, we don't stand there with knocking knees and trembling teeth. We stand confidently before the throne of God because he has sprinkled us clean with the blood of Jesus. Verse 24 says, you have come to Jesus, the one who mediates the new covenant between God and his people. I don't understand it, but when God looks at me through Jesus Christ, he sees me as holy and perfect in his sight, so that I can go before his throne confidently and boldly knowing that he's forgiven me because of Jesus Christ. With a clear contrast between Mount Sinai and Mount Zion, the author sums up the underlying theme of the book of of Hebrews, the vast superiority of the new covenant over the old covenant. How foolish it is then that we, the the people that the letter of Hebrews was written to, or us, think that we who have begun that trek up to Mount Zion Would ever turn back to try to go up Mount Sinai. How senseless it is to abandon that journey of grace, empowered by faith and inspired by hope, and instead to fulfill a steep and impossible trek the dictates of the law, where it's no flesh will ever be justified, as Romans chapter three verse twenty says. As we move on to the last five verses of this chapter. Hebrew 12 climaxes with the fifth and final warning passage in the book of Hebrews. And if you remember back in our study through Hebrews, there are five warning passages. We've gone through four of them already. The first one was in chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. It says, pay attention lest you drift away. The second one is in chapters 3 and 4. It says, beware of a hard heart. The third warning passage in chapter 5 and 6 was a a notoriously hard teaching for us. It says, don't stray from the path of spiritual growth. The fourth passage in chapter 10, verses 19 through 39 was, stand firm in the flesh, or in the faith, sorry. Stand firm in the faith or be judged by God. And now we're at their fifth warning passage. The book of Hebrews and the author says in verses 25 through 29, Don't turn away from him. The warning in this passage is the final call to those who have begun to stray from the path of Mount Zion, Zion, and they start wandering back to Mount Sinai. In fact, the two warning blasts is from the author's megaphone. I didn't have a megaphone at home, so I'm using a wide mouth funnel. The first one is negatively described in verse 25. Be careful that you do not refuse the one who is speaking and arguing from the lesser to the greater. If you remember, throughout Hebrews, he uses that Jewish form of argument where they start with the lesser and then they take it to the greater. It was used throughout the Jewish history when they argued with each other. And the writer reminds us that there's readers that those who refuse to listen to God under the old inferior covenant established did not escape judgment, in verse 25. And here he's meant to recall us, recall both those Hebrews and us today, the destruction of an entire generations of rebellious Israelites as they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. Now we have the words of God spoken directly from the lips of God's Son, Jesus Christ, the incarnate Son of God. And it was also spoken through the mouth of the apostles after Jesus was resurrected and ascended to heaven, whose message was given directly by God's Holy Spirit to them. In this final warning passage, we should go back and recall that first warning passage in chapter 2. Let me read those first four verses of chapter 2. So we must listen very carefully to the truth that we have heard, or we may drift away from it. For the message God delivered through the angels has always stood firm, and every violation of the law, and every act of disobedience was punished, so what makes us think that we can escape if we ignore so great a salvation that was first announced by the Lord himself and then delivered by those who heard him speak? And God confirmed the message by giving signs and wonders and various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit whenever he chose. Be careful lest you drift. Now, the seriousness of neglecting this salvation Spoken by Jesus and then confirmed by the apostles, underscores the reference to the coming judgment, which serves as a warning of absolute futility of placing our hopes in this world system, which leads us to worldliness. Now, quoting from the passage in Haggai chapter two, verse six, which I read earlier, the author of Hebrews looks forward to a time, and the author of Hebrews recorded this one verse that says, Where God will shake the heavens, and the earth. In this final cataclysmic judgment, all of creation, which he's described in verses 26 and 27, he says, when God spoke from Mount Sinai, his voice shook the earth. But now he makes another promise. Once again, I will shake not only the earth, but the heavens also. This means that all of creation will be shaken and removed so that only the unshakable things will remain. I've spoken before, at Christ's second coming, he will establish his kingdom. He will create not just a garden of Eden, but a global Eden. And heaven will descend from, or Mount Zion will descend from heaven. The holy Jerusalem will come where we're global Eden, where we'll dwell and rule and reign with Christ forever, for all eternity. And this is what he's speaking about here. And it's in these things that we should place our confidence and hope. So the positive side of the warning comes now, using my megaphone again, in verse 28, it says, since we are receiving a kingdom that is unshakable, let us be thankful and please God by worshiping him in holy fear and awe. So that's the opposite of refusing the one who is speaking, as we were told in verse 25. Instead of neglecting the free gift of salvation, we should respond with joyful, grace oriented, referential worship and service to God marked with awe. Never forgetting, though, in verse 29, it says, Our God is a devouring fire, referencing back to Mount Sinai. The basis of the proper response is, in fact, that we have received a kingdom that is unshakable. We don't have to worry. We don't have to concern ourselves with the things of this world because we have a kingdom that is unshakable. So what's the application today? And it's on the bottom half of your bulletin insert. Application of Hebrews chapter 12, verses 14 through 29, is we must resist a worldly mentality. Worldliness discounts and denies Christ as Lord. It exchanges the internals for the externals. It values preferences over principles. It loves the things of this world and shuns the things of heaven. It clambers up that dark, gloomy Mount Sinai and steers clear of the torchlit path of Mount Zion. It turns us away from God's warnings and retreats to unbelief. It invests time and energy in the doomed world that fails to plant hope and put our hope of anchor in a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Now, there's a stark contrast between the pursuits of worldliness and the pursuits of holiness, and it's made clear in this passage we've read today. But now what? What do we do with this information that we've gained? Let's take worldliness out of the theoretical realm and bring it into the practical. How can we resist this worldly mentality? Well, let's look at three reasonable steps in order to do so. First, we must adjust our pace after starting the race. As with any race, the starting block is just the beginning. You're in this marathon, and your marathon starts when you accept Christ as your Savior, and it ends in eternity. When Christ establishes his kingdom here on earth, he remakes Eden into a global Eden. It means a lifelong day-by-day stretch over sometimes rough terrain. Each day might present a new challenge to us. Yes, we'll have good days that are sunny and bright and everything seems to be going well. Praise the Lord for that. There'll be days where the clouds are thick, the rain is pouring. Praise the Lord for that. Because during those difficult times, we're being purified, made holy for God. We need to realize that we're not running alone, nor are we competing with each other in this race to eternity, you're running a race of faith as a team. We here at Putnam and the church worldwide, all believers are running together as a team. And those who have run the path before us, who have gone on to eternity before us, show us the path to take. Those who follow us, we are to set an example of the path that they should take we must not forget that. When we follow this track, make sure you look around for mutual support and encouragement, both offering and receiving. Sometimes it's easy to offer some support. Sometimes it's difficult to receive that same support when we need it. So we need to slow down. Learn the life-changing lessons that the saints of old who have faced before us, they came through it victoriously the challenges that we face. And in our race, in this marathon of faith, let us consider those around us. Pat a fellow runner on the back and saying, good job, keep on. Pick a partner up who has stumbled in their faith. Mend the injuries of those who have fallen. And come to a place where they say, well, I've ruined it. No, you haven't. Be ready to help those that have stumbled and fallen and those that have been injured. We need to pursue peace and banish bitterness. In this way, we'll become an example of endurance to those who have yet to come behind us. Like the song we sang last week, let all those who come behind us find us faithful. Keeping others as a priority in this race of faith will help us to avoid putting ourselves in the place of the world of competition a carnal ambition. The second reasonable step is to calculate the cost before you quit. I think all of us in our spiritual life has come to a point where we say, I've had enough. I just don't want to participate in this marathon anymore. But let's not quit. Let us keep running. Again, this marathon is not a 50-yard dash or a 100-yard dash. Much of it may be uphill. It might be on ground. The worldly tendency is for us to shoot out of the starting block. But if when we do that, by the second lap, we're worn out. We get distracted by the scenery around us, whether it's frightening or it becomes boring. Or we get distracted by those shiny objects that are always around us, catching our attention there are serious consequences when we turn aside our upward, forward progress to Mount Zion. The champions of this worldliness are all re- always ready to woo us and say, oh, don't be so concerned about those spiritual things. Come along with us. We'll put you up in a nice hotel. Put your feet up and relax. Don't be so serious about your faith. But when we do this, we lose sight of Jesus Christ, the champion who initiates and perfects our faith we fail to progress in becoming more like Christ, that perfect imager of God. Our vision of God becomes clouded when we get distracted, and we no longer see him as an all-powerful consuming fire, but sort of a warm, fuzzy glow off in the future under a horizon. And then we no longer respectfully respond to His him, and we reject his word as irrelevant. Well, it doesn't apply to today. When this happens, we pay the price of his discipline, perhaps even wandering beyond the point of no return, as in the case of Esau, meaning that we start making choices that are contrary to God's precepts. And because of those choices, sometimes we get stuck with the consequence of those choices. But even with that, even if you've made some choices that aren't best in your life, and you had some consequences for that, God can get you past that to live a life that's pleasing to him and honoring to him, even with some of the baggage that we all carry. And the third reasonable step today is get a firm grip on the gift, gift of grace. There's sometimes our marathon through this life is harsh. Sometimes it feels drooling. Sometimes we get tired and just want to sit down. The Christian life is power, powered by grace, not law. It's powered by faith and not works. It's powered by love and not selfish ambition. Now I'm not saying there isn't times where we just need to sit and relax in this life of faith, but use it to re-energize yourself. So you can get back up and begin, continue running. How easy it is in our get what you deserve world to come short of the grace of God. How easy it is for us to settle for a bowl of stew instead of for the birthright that God has given us through Jesus Christ. How easy it is to lose our grip on the grace of God and not respond in gratitude, but in contempt. How easy it is to forget the distant glories of the heavenly Zion, that beautiful mountain, falling prey instead to the worldly Babylon. How tragic to take the wrong turn. And then i will find ourselves all of a sudden climbing the fiery Mount Sinai instead of that beautiful city of God, Mount Zion. So don't fall short of God's grace. Don't neglect the grace of God that Jesus Christ has given to us to embrace worldliness, because worldliness always leads to destruction. So to encapsulate the passage today, Don't settle for a bowl of stew when you have an inherited birthright as God's child. Keep running. We'll all finally finish our marathon, whether early in life or late. But we need to keep running. And at one day, when we all get to Mount Zion, we'll fellowship with angels, with those believers who have gone before us, and with everybody in the marathon with us when Christ returns. The next week we'll start the final chapter in the book of Hebrews, as we find ourselves standing at the crossroads of contentment and commitment. So I'd encourage you to please read Hebrews 13, verses one through seven, in preparation for next week's message. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Father, we do thank you. We thank you for this beautiful imagery in this passage today. We thank you that we are looking forward and running up toward Mount Zion, that we no longer have to be in fear and trembling at Mount Sinai, realizing that nothing we can do would ever be good enough to be in your presence. But it's not about us, Father. We're just to be faithful, to put our hope and our trust and our belief in Jesus Christ as our Savior, because he is the one who mediates between us and you. We thank you for this. Now as we take part in our communion, Father, help us to reflect on what Christ did for us, that we might have this place where we can come boldly before your throne, Father. We pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. I pray that this message was a blessing and a time of learning from God's word. Thank you so much for allowing me to be your guide, your mentor, but most importantly, I am your friend as I serve you through the Wisdom Trek podcast and journal each day. As we take this trek of life together, let us always live abundantly, love unconditionally, listen intentionally, learn continuously, lend to others generously, lead with integrity, and leave a living legacy each day. I am Guthrie Chamberlain, reminding you to keep moving forward, enjoy your journey, and create a great day every day. See you next time for more wisdom from God's Word.